From 89.7 WUWM, Milwaukee's NPR, this is Lake Effect. I'm Audrey Nowakowski. As more Midwestern states legalize recreational marijuana, we'll look at how that's impacting Wisconsin, which continues to have a complete ban on it. Then we'll talk about changes coming to the Milwaukee County transit system, including fare capping. Fare capping is definitely one of the fastest growing trends that you'll see in transit. Fare capping naturally simplifies the fare experience for riders. We'll learn about a new program that supports traditionally underfunded artists develop their business skills. We're walking into a field where we can have a lot of impact, and that's the hope of having a lot of impact and just be there as a, as a support system for individuals uh, when it comes down to their artistry. Plus, Bubbler Talk will explore some of Milwaukee's early architecture. All that's coming up on Lake Effect, but first, here's today's headlines. This is Lake Effect from 89.7 WUWM, Milwaukee's NPR. I'm Audrey Nowakowski. Thanks for joining us today. Over the last couple of months, there have been murmurs about the possibility of legalizing medical marijuana in Wisconsin. But as of right now, those talks have stalled in the state. Currently, there's a patchwork of laws governing the use and possession of marijuana in Wisconsin, some that effectively decriminalize it, and others that consider possession as a felony offense. Soon, Wisconsin is likely to be surrounded by states where marijuana is legal for recreational use. And a new analysis from the Wisconsin Policy Forum finds that half of all Wisconsinites over 21 can drive just an hour and a half from their homes to a legal dispensary. So what does this changing landscape mean for Wisconsinites? Ari Brown is a senior research associate at the forum, and he joins Lake Effect's Joy Powers to further explore the report. Right now, how many states in the Midwest have legalized marijuana? If we're looking specifically at kind of Wisconsin's region of the Midwest, um, Illinois and Michigan are the big two. Minnesota has a medical law in the books. It is looking very likely that by the end of 2023, they will have a recreational law on the books as well. Um, if you zoom out a little bit further, um, Missouri is another state that uh, just recently passed a recreational law. So it is becoming more and more popular to see in the Midwest. Just a couple of years ago, um, we've kind of been remarking since the last time we've written about this topic, we wrote about this in November of 2019. That was right before both Michigan and Illinois essentially had their recreational law go into effect. So a lot has changed recently. We're talking, of course, in the context of the Wisconsin Policy Forum's report. And here in Wisconsin, there is no form of legal marijuana. Now, there are a variety of reasons for that. Uh, really one main reason for that, that we'll get into a little bit later. But part of what we've seen in other states in the Midwest is a process that has been really a direct referendum, something that is not available here in Wisconsin. But when we look at Illinois, it was in fact legalized through legislation. What is the process just in general of legalization looked like in these states? Yeah. So as you point out, the move that essentially all states besides Illinois have uh, gone to in order to legalize marijuana is a, a direct ballot referendum uh, where, you know, you have a certain amount of people, depending on the state, go through some sort of petition process where you need to collect signatures and get some sort of question on the ballot um, that then, um, you know, just whether or not there's a, a majority that approves that question um, in an election, whatever was on the petition is passed into state law. 
Um, as you point out, Wisconsin does not have that process, which is certainly a major reason why there is not a law in the books in Wisconsin right now. Illinois would be the one state that has done this differently. Illinois has passed through their, their state House and Senate and then signed by the governor, um, a law, which obviously had to be crafted to, to fit the parameters there. But yeah, th those are kind of the two major approaches here. Obviously in Wisconsin, not having that sort of direct ballot referendum process in the same way that, that other states do, that's certainly going to be a major hurdle for any sort of law going forward. Now, we have had referenda, of course, these are non-binding referenda in Wisconsin, which showed that there is overwhelming, in the case of Wisconsin, support for the legalization of marijuana. Our legislators clearly aren't respecting what voters want in this case. But let's take a step back, really look at what's happened in Michigan and Illinois, because as you alluded to, their laws do work a little differently differently. Um, I'd like to really key in on what sales have looked like in both of these states. Yeah, I think um, it's a it's a really good microcosm of, of what the system looks like as a whole. So uh, in Michigan, their um, recreational process kind of went into effect at the very, very end of 2019. What you've seen there is that sales have increased pretty steadily over the last three years. They reached uh, a high point in December of 2022, the most recent month for which this data is available, of about $208.3 million in total sales. Their mechanism for taxation um, is fairly simple. It's a 10% excise tax, um, so that would be on top of uh, state sales taxes, and that's for, for all products. So you go in, you, you buy whatever sort of recreational marijuana product, you're paying the state sales tax as well as a 10% uh, excise tax. Illinois sales work a little bit differently. You've also seen in general sales have have ticked up over time. Um, Illinois also hit their their all time high sales for a month uh, in December of 2022 at 143.9 million. So just a little bit lower uh, than the Michigan amount. That said, both states sold over 1.5 billion dollars in product over the course of 2022. Um, but Illinois tax works a little bit differently. So in addition to both state and local sales taxes, there's a 7% gross receipts tax on the production of the product. There's also an additional excise tax that depends on what exactly you're purchasing. Um, so there's a lot of complexity to these laws. Uh, they look vastly different from state to state, um, which I think is part of what you run into when you're looking at, you know, how to deal with a product at the state level versus at the federal level. Um, but they have certainly seen overall fairly similar trends that differ when you look get into some of the specifics around those tax schemes and, and um, you know, retailing issues and, and licensing and things like that. So decidedly different ways that they're regulating these products in each of these states. But that being said, it sounds like in the case of both Illinois and Michigan, they're raking in quite a bit of tax money. Yeah. So, you know, we ha we have the figures from 2022 in our report. Michigan, it looks like collected around $111 million or about $11 per state resident from that 10% excise tax. Um, that's not counting whatever extra was in sales taxes. Um, Illinois collected a much higher amount, likely due to the, the higher tax level. The state itself, I believe, collected somewhere around 450, yeah, sorry, $445.3 million in state taxes, uh, additional $146.2 million in local taxes, so much higher amounts. I think it's good to kind of contextualize these amounts with, you know, we had a, we have a good basis for contextualization with the uh, governor's budget proposal coming out. Just to put that into context, 
Um, the governor is proposing a budget that's kind of in the $23, $24 billion range for uh, general purpose uh, revenue and spending. So when you're talking a, a couple hundred million dollars, and again, this is in year three of implementation, um, you know, in the first year or two, you would have significantly lower amounts. You know, it's not anything that is hugely transformative. That said, is another, you know, large funding stream that could pay for any number of things that both of these states now have access to. The elephant in the room here uh, is always that Wisconsinites do overwhelmingly support the legalization of marijuana in the state, but our legislators just aren't respecting the will of the voters on this issue. If the people of Wisconsin want this, why aren't specifically Republican politicians respecting what voters want for themselves? So to kind of put that into a sort of policy framework, um, one of the things we've seen, you mentioned earlier, um, these non-binding referenda, over the last you know five to 10 years, there have been a number of, uh, of non-binding referenda that just kind of pull voters in specific locations around the state. Would you be in favor of, of some sort of either medical or recreational law? The, the language of these looks different and they, they have not been polled kind of at the statewide level. They've been mostly local at the, at the municipal or county level. But in general, pretty overwhelmingly, you've seen uh, voters in favor of some sort of law, either medical or recreational. And again, we have the state budget that the governor's proposal came out. It includes both a medical and a recreational law. The you know stepping stone that we have not seen get progressed to yet is uh, Senate and Assembly Republicans generally have not been on board. There were some kind of rumblings over the last couple of months um, where we had um, Senate uh, Republican leaders mentioning that there might be some starting to get to some sort of agreement on medical specifically. Assembly Speaker Robin Voss also at, at a certain point mentioned that that his caucus might be getting a little bit closer. That has since kind of regressed a little bit and it no longer seems like the Senate Assembly Republican caucus is going to agree on that yet. So, you know, largely it sounds like it's been kind of a, a matter of agreeing on language, agreeing on provisions. Uh, I know when this came up in 2019, there was a lot of talk of, you know, if there were to be a medical law in place, what would sales of that product look like, ranging, you know, from anything to a, a smokable kind of like flower product versus proposals where it was just in a pill form. And so there's so many different facets of this law that that have to be debated. And it sounds like in general, the Republican caucus and the Assembly and the Senate just have not gotten there yet. I think a lot of the apprehension is things that you've you've typically heard going back, you know, before there were states that had, you know, recreational or medical laws on the book, you know, we're opening up a new substance that can be potentially harmful to kind of wide scale consumption. And, and that could have deleterious effects, uh, effects on society in, in a number of ways. We mentioned at the end of our report, things like crime, uh, road safety, you know, health effects, all of these items are, are worth thinking about when it comes to the legalization of marijuana. And I will also mention that the Wisconsin Policy Forum does not take a stance on this topic. You know, we're simply looking to, to kind of analyze this from a perspective of, you know, policy implementation in a number of states around Wisconsin and very close to Wisconsin's borders. That said, I think it's something that you have seen change very quickly. And I think that one of the one of the items that you've seen as a barrier to getting a law passed would be just apprehension around all of those other societal effects that uh, legalization of marijuana might have. 
Sure, but the trepidation there seems uh, j- just ignorant of reality. I don't believe the use of marijuana among Wisconsinites uh, differs in any way right now from Illinoisans, from Michiganders. We know that people are already using marijuana in the state of Wisconsin. We also know that there have been a variety of actually quite deleterious drugs, specifically synthetic marijuana that have popped up as a result of the prohibition on marijuana that have had incredibly adverse effects on people's health. And when I say that, I do mean synthetic marijuana. I don't mean Delta 8. I don't mean Delta 10. Those are different products. But looking at really the laws right now in Wisconsin that govern marijuana use, it seems like we really are dealing with quite a patchwork that is confusing for people who are legally buying uh, marijuana in other states and then taking a short drive home and then illegally using them in the state of Wisconsin. What are those laws looking like right now? Yeah, so so I want to address kind of the the first point you make there, and and I think it's a, it's something that's worth pointing out, and this is kind of one of the major points of our report, which is that the longer Wisconsin goes without any sort of law in the books, regardless of the feelings of various legislators, the the consensus of residents of the state, the reality is that uh, Wisconsin has two neighboring states where there is a law in place. It is very likely to have a third very soon borders that are very close to big population centers of the state. So I think it is not worth discounting the extent to which there might be a very functioning black market for the substance. Um, and, and I think you make a good point, which is that when you have some sort of black market, what you are missing is potential regulation of these synthetic products that can be um, extremely harmful to individuals. And and in states where you might have some sort of recreational law in the book, you also, along with that, have you know public health infrastructure that that addresses what are the telltale signs of a synthetic product. What are safe consumption habits for this product? You have law enforcement that is more keyed into, uh, you know, this is what someone who might be driving under the influence of this substance might look like um, versus in a state where you have complete prohibition, you might not have those effects in place because you just don't have the policy infrastructure and specifically the regulatory infrastructure. To your latter point, I think that Wisconsin specifically is at a, a really interesting point now where there is a very confusing um, web of policy when it comes to how various governments deal with this product. Um, so I think, you know, just to take Milwaukee as an example, um, the Milwaukee County Board of Supervisors in 2021 lowered the fine for the possession of small amounts of marijuana and for smoking marijuana in public, both to just $1. So at the local level, you have fines of just a dollar, which, you know, is, is very feasible, you know, essentially amounts to decriminalization um, when the fine is that low. At the state level, for the exact same, you know, quote unquote crime, you have very different laws. The state statutes treat possession uh, and consumption very differently. The fine is much higher. At the federal level, of course, this is still a substance that's illegal and not only illegal, but classified as a Schedule One substance, which is, you know, in the same grouping as things like cocaine and methamphetamine. And then not only that, so that's overlapping policy in, in just one jurisdiction. Obviously, the state and federal law still applies in Milwaukee County. But you drive just an hour south and now you're in a state that treats the substance 
completely differently. And not only that, but but sells it at the retail level. You know, and, and you travel from one city in Wisconsin to another, you might be crossing a municipal border where the fine goes from something like a dollar to a couple hundred dollars. So I think that, you know, regardless of all of the kind of policy realities when it comes to this substance, what you're left with as a resident of the state right now is a very confusing policy grouping for this substance and something that is just very difficult to understand at the individual level unless you're tracking this very closely. It also changes very frequently. A lot of these laws, when it comes to lowering fines, are, are very recent as of the last couple of years. And you have states around Wisconsin that over time, you know, within the last three or four years, these recreational laws have gone into effect in Illinois and Michigan. They're likely to go into effect in Minnesota. And then you still have states like Iowa that, that have nothing on the books. So it's a very kind of patchy policy framework. We don't really see a lot of other substances treated like this, um, this kind of patchwork um, policy. It's just not something we see very often. And I think it can lead to a lot of confusion at the individual level. Well, we will see what the future holds. Uh, Ari, thank you as always for joining us here on Lake Effect. Yeah, thanks so much for having me. Ari Brown is a senior research associate for the Wisconsin Policy Forum, and he spoke with Lake Effect's Joy Powers about the forum's recent report titled, Changing Midwest Marijuana Landscape Impacts Wisconsin. Did you know you can listen to Lake Effect as a podcast? Just search for Lake Effect wherever you get your podcasts to download and listen to us on demand. You can also follow WUWM on Instagram, where you'll find videos and pictures from news stories and Lake Effect interviews. In about 15 minutes, we'll tell you about a new program that's helping Milwaukee creatives from traditionally underfunded groups strengthen their business skills. But first, we'll learn how MCTS is launching fare capping for bus riders. That's coming up after the break on Lake Effect on 89.7 WUWM, Milwaukee's NPR. listening to Lake Effect on 89.7 WUWM. I'm Audrey Nowakowski. The Milwaukee County Transit System is changing how they collect bus fare. They're introducing fare capping, which limits how much a rider has to pay. Passengers will be able to save money, but you need to download an app or switch over your M card to a Wisco card. Bonnie Crawford is general manager of Umo Mobility, which is the app many MCTS riders use to pay their bus fare. Tom Winter is director for the Service Development Department at MCTS. They both join Lake Effect's Mallory Chang to explain more. 
the Milwaukee County Transit System is launching a new way to collect bus fares. MCTS is introducing fare capping, where passengers will save money the more that they ride the bus. Tom, how will this all work? The newness of, of the fare capping, the new fare collection system, is that it's an account-based system. So you will either, as a rider, download an app on your smartphone, or you'll be able to pick up a new card, a new fare card that will replace the current M card. And then you create an account in either of those two manners. The new thing of the system that we're excited about is that it counts the number of rides that you take. And the reason it does that is that as you're paying cash fare, then you will, as you ride throughout the week or the month, you will earn the value of that pass uh, earlier than you would have otherwise. So then you don't, and once you've done that, once you've earned that, you don't need to keep paying into the system. So that that's the main benefit of fare capping. And what is the new fare structure? Like, what is the maximum amount of money that riders are spending each day? So like, say I am commuting, I go one way to the office, one way back from the office. And if I have to transfer, sometimes that's an additional amount of money. Like, is that all that going to be simplified? How much... Uh, is the maximum amount of money that one rider can spend in a day. The, the cost of a one-day pass today is $5. And so the cash fare today is $2.25. So you know you would have to, on that ride in your example, you, you paid twice, you spent $4.50. But once you ride another time, then you've earned under fare capping the value of a day pass. So you don't need to keep paying $2.25, $2.25 for any additional rides you take, uh, you know, throughout the day. So that that's really the selling point that you, you've, you've earned, once you've earned the limit of a day pass, which is $5, or a weekly pass, which is $19.50, or a monthly pass, which is $72, you don't need to keep paying. So in the case of a weekly pass, which is, again, of $19.50, as you're riding the bus throughout each day of the week, you you may already earn the full value by Wednesday or Thursday, for example, of that seven-day period. Again, the value is you don't need to keep paying more and more. So it also has it has these sort of value of uh, improving social equity because the, the the limitation of the current system is you need to have that nineteen dollars and fifty cents at the start of you know prior to the new week to pay for that pass. You might not have that much money. Uh, or similarly, in the case of a monthly pass, that's $72. That might be kind of a heavy lift to have that money at the start. So with capping, you don't have to have that big chunk of money there. You just keep using, paying the cash fare. And then, as I say, you, you, you earn the value of the pass, and then you don't need to pay afterwards. That's really good to know. This new system is going to help a lot of people with their monthly planning, maybe even get to travel outside of work and use transit to explore other parts of the county. And Bonnie, you work at UMO, which is the app that MCTS bus riders have been using to pay for their fare. And UMO works with transit agencies all throughout the country. Are there other metro areas in the country moving towards fare capping as well? Absolutely. Fare capping is definitely one of the fastest growing trends that you'll see in transit. 
Large cities like London and New York have been implementing fair capping now for quite some time. And they're seeing, as Tom pointed out, a tremendous value for both from a social equity perspective, but also from the fact that fair capping naturally simplifies the fair experience for riders. So if I'm coming into Milwaukee and I'm a new rider and I haven't experienced transit or I'm visiting you know, the Deer District, for example, to see a Bucks game, I don't have to think about whether or not I need $1.50 or $3.25 or you know, whether or not I qualify for a reduced fare. I have the ability to just jump on board and know that it's an easy fare that I can access with my mobile phone or with my smart card. And one of the things I would really want to point out around the equity aspect is that we know that in public transit, there are about 30% of riders who are unbanked or underbanked, and so are cash preferred. Maybe they don't have a smartphone or they don't speak English as their primary language at home. And so being able to provide a smart card that can be loaded at a retail location around the Milwaukee County, being able to provide the app in a different language so that people are more comfortable navigating transit, those are all things that really start to set Milwaukee apart in terms of the evolution of the mobility in the community. To participate in fare capping, riders need a smartphone to download the UMO app or even know to make the switch from an MCTS M card to a Wisco card. And like what you just said, Bonnie, a lot of some riders are underbanked. They don't have access to a phone or have a bus card. But how is MCTS going to accommodate passengers who can only pay in cash in this new fare capping system? What is outreach going to look like? Yeah, we've actually already begun having some um, public outreach meetings at our offices to sort of begin that education process. Of course, there's plenty of information at ridemcts.com on fare capping, on uh, how to sort of manage the system. Um, And then I think another important point is, while the new system does officially take effect on April 1st, we're allowing people to still, you know, in that interim process, still use their M card uh, for several months until September, when the current system will become the legacy system, and then that will be turned off. But we certainly do encourage people to make the switch because the the real benefit, um, as we're pointing out, is like you you have a financial incentive to do so, and um, the quicker you can, the more you'll you'll benefit. Yeah, and I would add on the technology front, it was really important to ensure that riders who didn't have a smartphone were served by the new WISGO program that MCTS is launching. So that really meant ensuring that there were retail locations for those riders to be able to utilize that smart card so that they didn't need to have a phone in their pocket. We also really recognize from a technology perspective that you may have a phone, but it may not have a data plan. It may uh, be that you prefer to connect uh, via your home computer. And there's a portal that riders can go out and they can load uh, money from their home or from the public library, for example. And they also have the ability, of course, to go to the many retail locations throughout the community and load their new smart card. There will also be changes into the UMO app as well. As we currently know it, you buy a ticket or you buy a fare on your phone and you show it to 
um, the bus driver. Is that going to change with keeping track of each like fare capping day? Will there be like a barcode? Will there be a scan? How will that work? Fundamentally, the app experience is going to change. You know, where you have the pass that you're showing to a driver, one of the best things about the system is that we're really trying to limit the amount of interactions that people need to have as they're boarding so that they can get where they're going faster. So you will add funds to your wallet um, in your UMO app. And that looks like whether you want to use Apple Pay or Google Pay, whether you want to enter a credit or a debit card that's stored in your app, you can simply click add your cash amount that you'd like, whether that's $2 or $4. Um, It's really meant to utilize that fare capping. And then they'll scan their QR code, which is a dynamic QR code, when they get on board the bus. And that really allows them to quickly board and um, ensures that they're getting all of the benefits of that fare cap. If I could just jump in, really, the other benefit, the really big benefit is just, if, if you were removing the driver, you know, from that, having that interaction, and then that allows them to really focus on, you know, driving safely, uh, watching for traffic. We all, you know, we're kind of familiar with, you know, the problems of reckless driving. And so as a driver, you know, you, of course, you're, you're focused on providing that safe ride. So having to remove the driver from that verification process really is, is going to be important. And, and I think our drivers from, you know, really are, are going to really appreciate that, that they can just sort of focus on the most important aspect of their job. Bonnie, I'm just curious, has this been encouraging more people to ride public transit with the other cities that you all work with? Yeah, I would say we've absolutely seen ridership increases. Anytime that you can make the system more uh, simple and easy to use and more accessible, it is going to create some of those ridership benefits. I would also say that, you know, in all of the 70 cities that UMO serves around North America, we have about 50% of our transit agencies who have really been brave enough, I would say, to take that step because there's quite a bit of complexity in fare structures. And it really requires a team effort from both the transit agency, their county executives, city, um, you know, the people that support them to make those changes. And, you know, it is going to ultimately increase ridership over uh, the long haul. Yeah, and I would just expand on that to say that, yeah, we were definitely excited about seeing the experiences from other systems, how ridership has increased. And, you know, beyond just the fact that it's a number increasing, it, you know, it's it's improving people's mobility. And one of our kind of goals as an organization, as MCTS, is to improve that rider's experience. And uh, about a year ago, we, we we designed our route network to make the route, make the system easier to use, to make it simpler. Uh, and we saw the benefits of that in terms of more riders. And so uh, this is just another way to improve that by looking at that aspect of how you pay for the system, making that simpler. So we're very happy to see um, this new system come online and hopefully see you know more riders on the bus. Tom and Bonnie, thank you both so much for being here on Lake Effect. I really appreciate you both being here today to talk about fare capping. And thank you both so much. Thank you, Mallory. Thank you, Mallory. We'll see you on board. Bonnie Crawford is general manager of Umo Mobility, which is the app many MCTS riders use to pay their bus fare. Tom Winter is director for the service development department at MCTS. They both join Lake Effect's Mallory Chang. 
In about 15 minutes, Bubbler Talk explores the early architecture of Milwaukee and who's behind it. But first, we'll learn about a new program for Milwaukee artists that aims to support the business side of being a creative. That's next on Lake Effect on 89.7 WUWM, Milwaukee's NPR. This is Like Effect on 89.7 WUWM. I'm Audrey Nowakowski. Making art is not just about beautiful brushstrokes, creating lines and compositions. For working artists, it's also about paying the bills. A new program, Generator Art Sherman Phoenix, aims to help traditionally underfunded artists in Milwaukee develop their business skills. Darius Smith is the program director for Generator Art Sherman Phoenix, and Maureen Regali is the director of Generator Art. They joined WUWM's Mayan Silver to share more about the program. It's basically an opportunity for artists within the city of Milwaukee can get programming, not just from just being an artist, but being a professional artist, um, can get all the tools and the insights of how to do things as an artist, not just from making art, but like, hey, filing your taxes, having a budget, all these different things that the things that people don't like to talk about when it comes down to being an artist, those difficult conversations. And it's, um, it's just a moment for artists can not just get the mentorship and get the understanding of how can I be a better artist, but how can I be a professional artist at the end of the day? What, what, Dar- what Darius said is, is really accurate. Um, to kind of give you a little bit more background though, so Generator Art is a program that's funded by Generator, uh, which is a venture capital company. Um, and they run accelerator programs and skill programs and fellowships. Um, and they um, really their interest in supporting artists is thinking about artists as entrepreneurs and small businesses. Um, and so uh, Generator runs now a couple different programs that support artists in, in different ways. Um, so, for example, the program that I run is a 12-week program uh, where we mentor about four artists at a time uh, and we give them grants and then individual uh, attention to help them move the business side of their art practice forward. And so the program that Darius will be running this spring uh, kind of has a couple different sections to it. And it's specifically supporting creative professionals who have been traditionally underfunded, BIPOC, LGBTQIA+, female, non-binary, people with disabilities, neurodivergent veterans, etc. What is that all about? When it comes down to grant opportunities in the state of Wisconsin and just Milwaukee, we know it's not a lot of funding when it comes down to that. And outside of just that, uh, a lot of artists... um, don't normally have uh, the best experience when it comes down to getting grant opportunities. So what this program is, we just want to make sure that we're hitting those communities that really need um, that funding, not just the funding, because that's great, but the education as well, those other tangibles that comes with it, with not just that, but building a community. So outside of just the money, what we're really, what we're really hoping to do is have, hopefully have a, you know, a community of artists that can come together, that can work out of the Sherman Phoenix, 
who can understand like, hey, you can be an artist inside of Milwaukee and find community and find people that appreciate your work and all these different things. So hopefully, you know, yes, it is good to travel and go to other places for your artistry, but it's also good just to have home in the sense of I have galleries here. I have the museum here. I have all these entities that I can feel appreciated as an artist. So I don't have to look at the out as an escape for um, feeling validated and appreciated within the city of Milwaukee. Well, and art is hard enough, you know, developing your craft and, you know, executing the creative ideas with skill. But then there's this idea that you have to support yourself as well and, you know, sort of navigate the business component, marketing, sales. What are some of the needs that you've been hearing from artists specifically in the Milwaukee area? Um, funding, um, not just funding, but um, an understanding of what to do and where to go. Because we have to be honest, um, going to school is a privilege. A lot of the uh, a lot of the artists that may be applying for this program may not have the um, you know a educational background in their artistry. That doesn't take away from them being artists. It just happened to be a certain barrier that they have to jump over or find a way around. But that is one of the things that majority of the artists in the city just want support. And I think support can looks like can look like a lot of different things for other people in different ways. It can be having uh, a bunch of people around you that can support you in all these different ways when it comes to ideas, mentorship, funding, um, of, or just having someone to talk to. Um, so definitely multi-layered. We know we're, we're walking into a field where we can have a lot of impact, and that's the hope of having a lot of impact and just be there as a, as a support system for individuals uh, when it comes down to their artistry. So on that note about this Generator Art Sherman Phoenix program, there's like two really big components. There's the public year-round programming, and then there's the seven-week accelerator program, which also comes along with some pretty substantial grants. Can, can both of you talk about that? Yes. So we really kind of understand that artists in Milwaukee, as Darius mentioned, uh, really need both funding and mentorship and support. And so we really wanted to step in and help fund artists who have been traditionally underfunded uh, in the past, and again, help them build those skills that they need in order to have a self-sustaining art career. So with that, we're really focusing on, um, again, the business skills that they need. So focusing on things like getting their website up to date, uh, making sure that they know how to create budgets, uh, making sure that they have networking skills and those soft skills that they need in order to be successful in the art world. Can you talk a little bit about this accelerator program and the grants that come along with it? Um, yeah, I think I can, I can expand a little bit on the program. I want the experience to be the thing that people take away with, just because I, I find that one, in the day and age that we live in, we don't have much uh, of face-to-face -face interactions or just interactions together as a, as a unit, as a community, and I want folks to come inside the program and um, each step, each week of the program will be something different. We'll have a week that's just designated around how to tell your story. Because what we want to do, we want each individual, since every person's story is completely different, to be able to tell their story properly. So if they're doing an artist talk, even working on their artist statement, be able to know themselves in and out because that is very important. Just to know your own story and how to tell your story because everyone's story is different. 
another week. It'll be dedicated, my favorite part, just to mental health and mental wellness. Um, we'll have a therapist being able to come in and talk to the uh, cohort about how are they feeling. We'll have a conversation around when you do have an artist block or a creative block, because sometimes with artists, you have to get in front of yourself, in front of the things that's stopping you from creating, and that's really important. And the other one that I do find very important is just the mentorship. Um, not just only having mentorship for individuals inside of Milwaukee, but actually having mentorships from folks that don't live in the city of Milwaukee that, can, uh, that you can talk to, talk to about your work, talk to about all these different things that you can get out of the, the bubble that we can possibly live in when we're inside of Milwaukee. Because if you're an artist in Milwaukee, I'm pretty sure you only talk to Milwaukee artists. The one thing that I really want is just people just to come out of the program with an understanding like, oh, this is what support feels like. Um, instead of like, I wish I had support, now you can honestly say, this is what support feels like, this is what it feels like to go through a program that um, the funds, yes, the funds are great, but I actually have support. I actually have someone I can reach out to. I actually have certain individuals that's looking out for my best interests. And I think sometimes in the day and age we live in, that's hard to find. But the grants do go up to $10,000 for each individual artist, right? Yes. So that's a pretty big deal. Yes, we oh, will good. be giving out um, grants to about 15 artists in this first cycle uh, with grant amounts up to $10,000 for each artist. And how does that kind of coincide with these public workshops? Are those workshops going to be more generally business oriented? You know, what are, what are the components of those programs? Yes, so the public-facing workshops will be, again, focused on the business side of your art practice. Um, everything from uh, how to write an artist statement, uh, what your online presence should look like, etc. Uh, we will also have public programming that includes artist talks, where we invite artists from both in Milwaukee and outside Milwaukee to talk about their personal experience and their success as an artist. Um, and then, last but not least, we will have uh, a masterclass series where we will invite art experts from all over the country to talk about the art market and how artists can fit into that art market. And what are you looking for in candidates for these for this cohort, this first group? Uh, so first and foremost, we're looking for really good artists. Uh, we are looking for artists who have a very strong artistic practice but are also interested in exploring the business side of their art practice. And so the jury that's reviewing all these applications will really be looking at a couple of different things. They'll be looking at the artist statement, um, so a paragraph or two where the artist talks about who they are artistically, what it is that they're exploring with their work, um, and then artists can submit up to seven artwork samples. Um, those can be photographs or video clips, uh, and the jury will review those and decide based on those artistic samples. Do you know anything about the state of arts funding in Milwaukee since the pandemic? I mean, one artist I follow on Twitter said he has had a thousand rejections for every successful project. That sounds about right. Um, so my understanding is that Wisconsin is last among the states in arts funding. Um, I can't speak to where Milwaukee is in that particular arts funding ecosystem, uh, but I know it's not wonderful. Um, and so it's really hard out there for artists. And again, providing any sort of opportunity 
um, for funding and mentorship is incredibly important, not only because they need funding and mentorship, but because uh, the mentorship will make them more eligible for other funding opportunities. Well, Darius Smith and Maureen Regali, thank you so much for talking to me about Generator Art by Sherman Phoenix. Thank you so much. Thanks for having me. Darius Smith is the program director of Generator Art Sherman Phoenix, and Maureen Regali is the director of Generator Art. They both joined WUWM's Mayan Silver. Bubbler Talk, quenching Milwaukee's thirst for knowledge. I'm WUWM's Lena Tran. Milwaukee boasts many architectural gems. City Hall, the Calatrava, the Wisconsin Gas Building. I'm discovering more and more every day. That's listener Reginald Jones. He's always been interested in architecture. At 14, he learned how to maintain marble and terrazzo floors. One of the first jobs I'd ever had in my early teens was a building that was uh, one of the landmark movie theaters, known as the Garfield Theater. So he was wondering... Who were the architects and civil engineers in the early days of Milwaukee at the city's outset? To find out, we'll go back to the 1830s. White settlers from the East Coast were flocking to frontier towns on Lake Michigan's western shore. Patrick Young, a historian at MSOE, dug through early histories of Milwaukee. He names a couple land speculators, most notably Byron Kilborn, one of the three city founders. Kilborn was trained as a civil engineer and arrived in 1835, making him among the city's first. But he didn't actually do much engineering. He wanted to get rich. If you wanted to get rich, you know, one of the ways to do that in early 19th century America was to buy land and sell it to somebody else for more. They were buying from the federal government. The U.S. forcibly acquired land around Chicago and southeastern Wisconsin through an 1833 treaty as part of the Indian Removal Act. But the land in Milwaukee was all swamp. So settlers began the work of sculpting the landscape, bringing down bluffs and using it to fill the marsh. They flattened hills, filled gullies, turned soggy bogs into solid ground. A city rose from water. In 1835, Solomon Juno, another founder and the first mayor of Milwaukee, contracted two young brothers from New York to grade Water Street from Wisconsin Avenue south to the river. You didn't necessarily need civil engineers to do all that. The Olins graded the first street in Milwaukee, and they were just simple farmers. It didn't take a lot of technical skill to take a team of horses and level off a swath of land to create a street. This work happened bit by bit as three founding villages grew, Walker's Point in the south, Juneau Town in the east, and Kilbourne Town in the west. Later, the three merged to form the city of Milwaukee. Probably the most important thing they did that we can still see today are the layouts of the streets. Once they bought the land, they would start dividing it out. They would say, this is where a street's going to go, this will be a lot. What did they put on those streets? The very first buildings were humble. But in the mid-1800s, as Milwaukee boomed, architects helped shape the city's identity. To learn more, I head to Cathedral Square to meet Michael Carrier, another MSOE historian. St. John's Cathedral is across the street. Cheerful Cream City brick pops against the bright blue winter sky, something you'll see in many of Milwaukee's historic buildings. It's the work of German-born Victor Schulze, one of Milwaukee's earliest trained architects. 
he ventured west from Philadelphia in the 1840s. And you can tell by their architecture that the people building them and ultimately paying for them see them as incredibly important to the city. It was meant to suggest that this is an important building, that religion for Milwaukee is an important institution. Schulte's peers included other transplants, like George Mygat and James Douglas. They drew from European styles. That was the way most American architects prior to the 20th century were trained. They were trained in the Beaux-Arts style. They were looking to Europe as the ultimate authority on what design should look like. Another part of the church's legacy? This is a really important brick structure, not only for the city of Milwaukee, but across the United States and sort of what you could do with a brick. Milwaukee does get this reputation of cream city brick. Where does that start? It starts with buildings like this in the mid-19th century. So that's the first civil engineers and architects. But here's the thing about first. Sometimes they obscure other chapters of history. Head north from the church and a spot at Lake Park shares an earlier story. A gentle slope rises from the earth. There's a baseball diamond just behind it. Beyond that, Lake Michigan glints through the trees. It's one of the last Native American burial mounds in the area. Last year, Bill Quackenbush, the Ho-Chunk Tribal Preservation Officer, spoke with WUWM about another such mound at the Wisconsin State Fair Park. It's within our ancestral footprint and within our, our areas that we call our home. Once, hundreds of these earthworks scattered the region. A 1923 Milwaukee Journal headline reads, Milwaukee built on 200 Indian mounds. Ruthless march of civilization has nearly destroyed all traces of early Native occupancy. Quackenbush works to protect what has survived. We are where we're at today, still in Wisconsin here, attempting to assure that our culture remains intact as it is and begin to strengthen it in areas where it has been decimated. From the sidewalks of Water Street to age-old mounds, the built environment is a reminder of the many who have walked before us. Lena Tran, 89.7 WUWM, Milwaukee's NPR. Support for this season of Bubbler Talk comes from UW Credit Union. What do you want to know about the Milwaukee area? Submit your question at wuwm.com slash bubbler talk. You can hear Bubbler Talk every Thursday on Lake Effect. You'll find more information on Milwaukee's early architecture at wuwm.com tomorrow morning. And if you want to hear last week's episode that looks into the history of some of Milwaukee's lesser-known cemeteries, you can find that at wuwm.com slash bubblertalk. And that's Lake Effect for today. I'm Audrey Nowakowski. Joy Powers and Mallory Chang join me in producing Lake Effect each week with help from Kate Flynn, Robert Larry, and Chase Browning. Becky Mortensen is our executive producer. We also heard from Emily Files, Mayan Silver, Rafael Munoz, and Lena Tran from the WUWM News team this week. Jason Reeve is our studio engineer. Michelle Maternowski is our digital manager. Valeria Navarro-Viegas is our digital editor. Trapper Shep wrote our theme music. Join us again on Lake Effect Monday at noon when we'll take a look at phosphorus and how its use is impacting the environment here in Wisconsin. Plus, we'll get a new book recommendation from the Milwaukee Public Library that celebrates Women's History Month. If you've missed any of Lake Effect this week, you can find all of our conversations at wuwm.com. If you'd like to take the show on the go, simply download the Lake Effect podcast wherever you get your podcasts. Thank you so much for joining us today, right here on listener-supported 89.7 WUWM, Milwaukee's NPR. NPR.